vainer than the French? <laughs> that was the question posed at the end of the last episode of this podcast. And I guess we're going to have an answer that the CNEs can beat them all around. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. Wow, that's a really odd start. And this is the podcast Walking with Dante, the podcast in which, well, we're going to just slow walk on down through comedy. And we've come to the end of Canto 29 of Inferno. We are way down deep in the pits of hell in the last of the evil pouches, the last of the malabolgia that make up the giant circle of fraud. And we have met an alchemist, a guy who... Maybe his name Griffolino, although I questioned that in the last podcast, or question why we need him to be named Griffolino. I actually don't really know that I question that his name is Griffolino. I more question why we need him to be named Griffolino, but that's, uh, this is in the last episode. Let's go on. So he's sitting there. He's told his tale. It's a tale about marks and grifters and teaching somebody to fly. And Dante then says, oh, those Cianese. I mean, the, the, I mean, they're worse than the French. And the other guy who was propped up against him is now going to give his reply here at the end of Canto 29. So let's turn to it. This is my English language translation. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com, either one. You can read along and you can even drop a comment there or question the interpretation or ask a question this episode may bring up for you and start a conversation. So here we go. Lines 124 through 139 of Canto 29 of Inferno. Then the other leper who heard me replied to my words, Except for street guy, certainly he knew how to moderate his expenditures. And for Nicolo, who was the first to create that lavish recipe using cloves, there in the garden where such seeds can germinate. And also for, for the brigade for which Caccia Dasciano squandered his vineyards and great wealth, and to whom Abagliato showed off his wit, but so that you will know who seconds your claims against the CNEs, let your eyes rest on me for a while and see if my face will give you the right answer. Then you'll see I'm the shade of Capocchio, who falsified metals by alchemy. You've got to remember, if you're the guy I think you are, how good an ape of nature I was. I don't really know how I got into this doing voices, but here I am doing them. We'll see if I keep that up through purgatory. Anyway, sorry, I'm amusing myself and, and perhaps only myself. Anyway, here we are at the end of Canto 29. We've got the second of these two speaking. We are going to clarify the disease that they have, at least clarify the disease one of them has. I want to talk to you about who all these figures are, Strika and Nicolo and Katya. Who are all these people? And by the way, it's going to get a little funky who they all are. And then I want to come out with a couple comments about the passage as a whole and the way Canto 29 ends. So let's get started. The first thing to notice is that this second 
person of the damned. Remember, they had been propped up against each other like pans in a scullery. The second of them is now identified as a leper. We talked about this a couple episodes ago. There may be multiple forms of leprosy in the Middle Ages. I mean, they may classify leprosy as various diseases in ways that we don't, whereas we mean strictly Hansen's disease. They may mean a set of diseases. And one of these we talked about is serpentine leprosy, where your skin gets very scaly, maybe like super advanced eczema or seborrhea. They somehow classified that also as leprosy. So we're now told that at least one of the two, and we presume both of them, are lepers since they both seem to have the same symptoms. But he speaks up and the disease is clarified somewhat. Modern thought, it's not terribly clarified, but it may be more clarified were I to be uh, medieval. Then this second fellow, who we find out is Capocchio, he starts into a giant discussion of other people. The question had been posed, aren't the Sienese the vainest people on earth? They can't even be beat by the French. And now this figure, Capocchio, is going to give some examples of Sienese vanity. He starts with Strica. Early commentators actually have no clue who this is. The very earliest commentators seem completely adrift at the name Strika. Later, we find some commentators identifying this person as Strika di Giovanni de Salimbeni, a fellow of a rather prominent Siena family. And if that is indeed the identification, then the second figure mentioned Niccolo is his brother. That would be Niccolo de Salimbeni. We do know that this Strica di Giovanni de Salimbeni was the Podesta, the we might say in modern parlance, the mayor, or if you live in New England, as I do, the first selectman of Bologna in 1276 and 1286. Again, the early commentators are adrift as to who this is, but clearly this person is wasteful with money. Clearly the whole bit here is that he spends a great deal. We should go back to alchemy. To have this bit here about spending a lot of money is kind of an ironic comment on alchemy because if you could make alchemy work, you wouldn't ever worry for money again. And to come out of all of this into a passage in which we have three figures mentioned and maybe a fourth who were wasteful with money, there surely is an ironic connection to the hope of alchemy, that it can provide you more money than you would ever know what to do with. The second figure he mentions is Niccolo. And as I say, eventually in commentary, this gets thought to be Niccolo de Salimbeni. Many commentators claim that this Niccolo was an infamous gourmet. I don't know that there's any historical evidence to suggest that or any historical record to suggest that. They're probably building that off, this idea that this fellow created a lavish recipe using cloves. Some of the um, early commentators claim that he was the first person to ever spice pheasant 
with cloves. Others claim that he he was the first to spice other meats. That's not clear exactly which of the meats it is. Again, some say pheasant, some say beef. It's hard to actually pin it down. And still others say that this Nicolo was a gardener, a herbalist, uh, somebody who was very interested in plants, and that he grew herbs so close to each other that they could cross-pollinate each other's. Now, I like that idea because I've already told you that alchemy, I think, is all about crossing boundaries. And if that's the truth, then this Nicola is crossing boundaries by having plants pollinate each other. So cloves, let's say, pollinate some other herb in his garden. Again, the record is murky here, to say the least. And while many commentaries in the modern world act like this is settled knowledge, when you go back and read, particularly the early commentators, you'll discover that they're not so settled on it. And then certain answers start being developed. 100, 150, 200 years after Dante, and that those answers become the accepted answers. There are clearly are people mentioned here, and I think that we're clearly supposed to believe these are people who Dante would have known, since he clearly knows who Capocchio is, or at least Capocchio knows who Dante is. We'll talk about that in a bit. Still, nonetheless, there's just this list of them, and it goes on. There's also a brigade from Caccia d'Asciano. This fellow is a member of probably the Spendthrift Brigade. Well, now we can date the Spendthrift Brigade. It was a group of Sienese wealthy young men in the latter half of the 1200s who basically pooled their money together and were known for throwing gigantic feasts, lavish feasts, even setting their money on fire, drinking up everything, eating up everything, inviting thousands of people to feast. It would be as if you had a few kids of, let's say, modern hedge fund managers who pooled all their trust funds together and just blew it on private jets and yachts and parties and suddenly there was nothing left. These figures in the Spendthrift Brigade became something of a public joke ultimately in the Middle Ages in central Italy because many of them actually ended up beggars on the street. We do have historical documents about Acaccia d'Asciano. We do have records of him from 1250, 1288, 1291, 1293, legal proceedings, property proceedings. We kind of know that this figure did exist. Whether he was actually a member of the Spendthrift Brigade is not clear. Dante clearly places him there. Maybe we should follow Dante's lead and say he knew, but he says he squandered his vineyards and great wealth. Well, or at least Capocchio says so, and we assume that Dante is behind Capocchio with his fingers in the puppet's mouth, and to whom Abagliato showed off his wit. Abagliato is a little more difficult. Abagliato, that name, it just means dazed or confused. Is this a real person, Abagliato? Maybe. There's the question about Capocchio, too. We'll get to that. We have three figures' names, Strica, Nicola, and Caccia. And then we come down to this fourth figure, Abagliato, 
whose name actually means something, dazed or confused, and suddenly the whole passage seems to be running on irony. Or maybe we look back up the passage and we think, wait a minute, do these people really exist? But then we do have records of Katya, and we do know that there was a streaker who was a Podesta of Bologna, so maybe that's who this figure is talking about and who ultimately behind him Dante is talking about. Isn't it weird how the passage decenters itself? It strikes me that this is thematic to the pit of the falsifiers. It strikes me that Dante, the poet, is playing a very sophisticated game, right? Throwing us actual characters out of historical records, probably who the poet even knew firsthand, and yet at the end, throwing in a figure who may or may not be an actual figure, Abagliato, to kind of decenter the whole thing. It just strikes me that this whole pit of the falsifiers is all about decentering what's certain, which is why it's about alchemy, <laughs> which is why it's ultimately about poetry. But you knew I'd get there, didn't you? I'm going to save that and get there at the end of the episode. Let's talk about Capocchio for a moment. The figure says, so that you will know who seconds your claims against the CNEs, let your eyes rest on me for a while and see if my face will give you the right answer. And most commentators believe, and I think that the wording of the text leads us to this conclusion really rightly, most commentators believe that Dante knew this figure, Capocchio. There is a problem with Capocchio, but I'll tell you that in a minute. The There was a man named Capocchio. He was a Florentine alchemist or maybe a Sienese alchemist. Again, commentators fudge and records even fudge. We do know that this fellow who was an alchemist, Capocchio, was burned at the stake in 1293. That is all true enough. It's the problem of the name Capocchio. That basically means blockhead or rockhead or hardhead. <laughs> It's, it's kind of an insult, Capocchio. Now, again, there was Capocchio who was burned at the stake, and maybe the burning at the stake was either that they used a name that made fun of him, or maybe his parents were just really cruel and named him Capocchio. But it's funny that that Capocchio arises after Abagliato meaning dazed or confused. It's just all kind of strange. There's no way to put my weight down on any of this. It seems every time I think I can put my weight down, oh, here's a figure who Dante the Poet really apparently knew. Then I turn and bump my shoulder against meta-literary problems and imaginative problems and poetic problems. And there's another problem that goes on here. Capocchio says he falsified metals by alchemy, and we've talked about alchemy a bit. We're going to talk more about it in a minute. And he says, you got to remember, if you're the guy I think you are, and again, right there, we seem to have this notion that Dante, the poet, and Capocchio know each other in some way. How good an ape of nature I was. This is an interesting place to end the 29th canto. Why? Because it calls us back to the usurers at the end of the seventh circle of hell. Remember, 
we come down the seventh circle, we pass the violent against others and the property of others. We pass the violent against themselves and their own property, the suicides and the economic squanderers. And then we come out and right on the edge of the cliff that Garion flies up to, right there we find the usurers and we're told by Virgil that usury is a perversion of art we're told that homosexuality is a perversion of nature who is the child of God remember this and that usury is a, a perversion of art which is the grandchild of God or the child of nature. And way back then in those podcasts, I talked about this whole theory of art that suddenly erupts right there. Well, it strikes me that we have a callback to the usurers here, the ape of nature, and also usury, holding money for, uh, for interest, but yet we have a bunch of spendthrifts here who waste money. It strikes me that there is a weird way in which the end of the seventh pit is being reflected here at the end of the 29th canto. Perhaps we could say that there is violence inside of this fraud. Perhaps we could say there are ways in which finally all of this ends in a bastardization of art, since art is the child of nature, and that would be alchemy too. Nonetheless, I'm sure that there are other claims you can make to draw the parallels here. Wealthy families amongst the usurers with their heraldic medallions hanging around their necks, to hear wealthy children of wealthy families who spend through all their money. There is yet something else to be said about the ape of nature. Dante himself is an ape of nature. He is using the natural world and the pains, the sufferings, the illnesses, the contagions, the way that the natural world operates, hail, flood, wind. He's using the natural world to describe the afterlife. Isn't it so interesting that so often the afterlife is just an extension of this life only magnified? But the ape of nature is Dante too. And there is a way that Capocchio and Dante are definitely connected here at the end. I mean, again, Capocchio seems to think that they know each other. Dante, we have already talked about this, is an alchemist. Poetry is alchemy. Poetry about the afterlife is truly a category mistake because you are making claims about the eternal placement of the soul inside of an fiction landscape, a fictive landscape. You're saying that Capocchio is in hell. <laughs> that in and of itself is a wild falsification. Benvenuto, the early commentator, tells a story about this Capocchio, and I don't know if this story is true, but he claims that at one point Capocchio Pocchio drew the scenes of the passion of Jesus, the stations of the cross, if you know what that means, the stations of the cross on his fingernails. He was so adept at drawing, this is the claim of Benvenuto, that he was able to put the stations of the cross on his fingernails. And Dante and Capocchio were together 
in, well, we might now say university. And Dante caught Capocchio doing this. Capocchio got embarrassed that he was perhaps making light of the Passion of Christ, and he quickly licked off the pencil engravings of the Stations of the Cross on his fingernails. And Dante, according to Benvenuto, got mad at Capocchio for doing it, not because he had painted the Stations of the Cross on his fingernails, but because he had licked them off, because he had they were so beautiful and so well done. And it's in such a tiny, like saying, you know, think about a fingernail, how tiny it is. And think about trying to make one of the stations of the cross. I don't know where Jesus falls and trips with the cross and, or where Veronica comes forward with the cloth. I mean, think about trying to paint that on your fingernails and make that realistic and what little landscape there is on your fingernails. And apparently, according to Benvenuto, Dante got very mad that Capocchio erased this masterpiece on his fingernails, not as Capocchio thought that Dante would be mad at the blasphemy of it. If that's the truth, and I really don't have any reason to believe it's the truth, but if it is the truth, it's just something else that connects them together as artists. If Benvenuto knows the truth there, then Dante is particularly irritated at a figure who ruins his art, thereby connecting them even more, thereby making them <laughs> even more connected in alchemy, in the alchemy of their art itself. These are complicated passages. They're complicated because they just seem to, at each turn, cause more problems than they solve, all the while holding on to the poets and the pilgrims' humanity. And it happens in this passage, too. We've already seen several ways to do that. Hold on to compassion. Hold on to your participation. And I just want to come back to that for a minute. I mentioned this two episodes ago, and I want to kind of mention it again. I think that one of the ways that Dante is showing us that you hold on to your humanity, even in a hellscape, is that you become a participant. And we've seen that Dante several times may, in fact, engage in sins similar to the damned or may be subject to problems that the damned are subject to, fainting in the face of Francesca, for example example, overwhelmed by your passions and passing out. We've seen this several times, and participation may be one of the ways that you, in fact, hold on. And here, we said that the participation was that Dante the Pilgrim asks, you know, what are your stories? Tell me who you are, and tell me who your people are, and tell me where you come from. You'll notice the first guy does not give his name, and here, Capocchio does give his name. But let me say one more thing about participation. Many, many, many years ago, when I was in grad school, um, I got asked to teach a Bible study at a Presbyterian church. Now, this was kind of crazy because at the time I had officially left the church, this uh, minister at this Presbyterian church came to a book group that I led. And eventually he said, I would like you to lead that book group inside my church, and I would like you to teach the Bible study. And I remember saying to him, oh, come on, you cannot be serious. You cannot want the atheist leading a Bible study. And he was like, no, I want you to do this because I see how you treat texts. So <laughs> one thing led to another, and it's a long and even more complicated story than what I'm telling you now. But I ended up teaching a Bible study in a Presbyterian church for many years. See, that seminary training really did pay off. One of the things that happened is this group of people who were in this Bible study wanted to uh, to do good works. You know, they wanted to be part of a Christian ethic in the world around them. And so they got connected up to a homeless shelter. 
And this homeless shelter needed people to make meals uh, once a month or maybe twice a month. You know, well, they, they had a various sets of volunteers come in, but they had an opening for somebody to do it once or twice a month to come in and cook the dinner for the men staying in the homeless shelter. So we were all jazzed to start doing this. And the guy that ran the homeless shelter said, not so fast. He said, it's all fine to come in and cook dinner for the homeless. But when you do that, the pan of lasagna will always lie between you and the homeless or the pan of chicken tetrazzini or whatever you made for dinner will always lie between you and the homeless. And he said, for the first six months, I don't want you making dinner. You have to come to the shelter twice a month and eat dinner with the men. There can be no pan of food between you and the homeless. Let me tell you that even today, 30 some odd years later, that is one of the scariest things I have ever done. I went to that shelter. I sat there with those homeless men. I ate dinner with them without any food between us because when the food is between us, it's so easy to act like I'm the giver and you're the taker and isn't this all nicely in place. But when I have to sit down and eat with you and talk with you, suddenly the whole ethic changes. That's what I want to say about participation, that there is a way in which finding yourself aligned inside of even hell itself helps preserve your humanity. There is not a block between the pilgrim and some of the sins, including here, knowing the shade of Capocchio. How else can you save your humanity? We talked about this last time. You can keep your sense of humor. And in fact, so much of this is very silly. And this passage that even now we have here is silly. So you can keep your sense of humor. And how else? Oh, there's one final way, and this may be the most dauntiest way of all, there's gossip. I mean, this passage is gossipy. It's very mouthy. You're gossiping about these CNEs who blew all their money. You're kind of laughing about them. You're like, oh, what jerks. They blew through their trust funds. They had all this money. Now they got nothing. They're begging on the street. It's very, you know, hey, I got a story to tell you. I don't mean to suggest that gossip is necessarily a virtue, but let me say that there may be a way that gossip holds on to your humanity. When you and I talk about someone else, we may be dehumanizing them, but there is a way that we're connecting. Even in hell, you can tell stories about the idiocy of the people around you. I'd like to go back and read this entire passage all the way back to the start of it in line 109 from last time and let the whole end of Canto 29 unfold. No voices, no sound effects, no nothing. Just let it unfold as the end, as these two pot-like damned speak, one first and then the other. I was from Arezzo, answered one of them, and Albero of Siena made me get put to the fire, but the reason I died didn't push me down here. Sure enough, I did say to him as a joke, I know how to rise up and fly through the air. (laughs) That one, he had the will, but not much smarts, and the dupe wanted me to show him the art of flight, but only because I couldn't turn him into Daedalus. He had me set on fire by one who loved him as a son. 
But into this last pouch of tin for the alchemy that I practice in the world, I was damned by Minos, who cannot make a mistake. And I said to the poet, was there ever a people so vain as the Sienese? Certainly not even the French by a long shot. Then the other leper who heard me replied to my words, except certainly for Strika, he knew how to moderate his expenditures, and for Nicolo, who was the first to create that lavish recipe using cloves there in the garden where such seeds can germinate, and also for the brigade for which Caccia d'Asciano squandered his vineyards and great wealth, and to whom Abagliato showed off his wit. But so that you will know who second your claims against the Sienese, let your eyes rest on me for a while and see if my face will give you the right answer. Then you'll know I'm the shade of Capocchio, who falsified metals by alchemy. You gotta remember, if you're the guy I think you are, how great an ape of nature I was. Well, that's it. The end of the 29th canto. We have walked all the way down to the start of the 30th canto that we will begin in the next episode of this podcast. And while we may have come to a very silly place of gossip and humor and grifters and their marks and all that stuff, it's about to get pretty desperate again. (laughs) That's not really a selling point, is it? Well... You know what the walk's like. You got to take it as it comes. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it. Please do those things because I can use the help in all of the analytics. Thanks for being on the journey with me. Thanks for being in this most disgusting pit of the falsifiers, this hospital ward of dropsy and rabies and malaria and whatever else is going on here. Scabies, good God, leprosy. Mm, Even here, thanks for being with me on this journey. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon.